Well, we have two passages today, one from Psalms and the other is from John chapter 10 because John 10 actually quotes our psalm today, which is Psalm 82. So turn to Psalm 82 first, and we are going to look at these two passages as a perfect follow-up actually to what we have been studying this past week at family camp, where the theme was the Word of God and and the continuity of the Old and New Testaments and its living, active, powerful work in our lives. Let's stand as we read Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. That's Psalm 82. And then turn quickly with me to John chapter 10, verses 31 through 39. As I mentioned, Jesus quotes Psalm 82 that we just read. And in this passage, he says, it says, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your powerful word. I do thank you that the scripture cannot be broken and how we have before us this seamless word that spans the Old and New Testaments. And for us, it spans the length of a book, but in reality, it spans millennia. And Jesus was standing before this crowd, talking to people about what you had said through your servants, the psalmists, and and he quotes it, as your very word, and he says, the scripture cannot be broken. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have so amazingly superintended the writing of your word, the preservation of your word, the powerful application of your word. And so we pray that you would do that this morning in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, what does it mean... I think probably when we read John 10, when we read Psalm 82, the most startling thing that stands out is this statement, you are gods. And it's in verse 6, 
conveyed to, and Jesus picks it up again. And what does that mean? Is this a proof text for Mormonism? Well, notice first that in our English translations that the word gods is not capitalized. That's good. It's proper. The word gods in verse 2 of Psalm 82, I think I said 6 earlier, translates the Hebrew word Elohim, which has a variety of meanings. And when it's used in a singular sense, it does refer to God with a capital G, the creator of the universe. But when referring to a group of people, it can mean mighty ones. It can mean occasionally angels or rulers or even judges in Israel. And so what God is saying in Psalm 82 is this. There were rulers and judges in Israel who judged unjustly and showed partiality. And they were mighty with regard to the rest of the people because they possessed authority. But they were not, of course, gods in the real sense because they did not possess self-government. They were still accountable to the Lord, the true God, the true king of the universe, dependent upon him, right, for everything, their breath, even the fact that they were in position. In verses 3 and following, then God tells these judges and rulers what they should be doing. He's saying you should be giving justice to the weak. You should be... uh, maintaining the right of the afflicted and the destitute. You should be rescuing the weak and the needy and delivering them from the hand of the wicked. But unfortunately, Asaph concludes they've, they've neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness, and because of it, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. So does that make sense as to what the context is for Psalm 82? And the irony, it is in verse 6, it says, I said, you are God's. Some of the most high, all of you, nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. And Asaph is saying, you may be mighty with respect to other men, but you too are still men. You will die, and your body will become dust once again, just like Adam and every one of his children, whether or not you are a king or a prince or a judge or a priest And so Asaph concludes the psalm with the words, Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. You are the true king and the only God. And I like that ending. All of these partial, wicked, mighty ones, judges who are like gods upon the earth, shall be judged by the true God who rules with impartiality and true justice. So when we go to John 10, we have to understand that Jesus is using this, it's a, it's a classic method of argument called arguing from a lesser point to a, a greater point. So these Pharisees objected to Jesus' use of the term son of God. And so Jesus in John 10 says, why do you have a problem with the very one whom the father consecrated and sent into the world being called the Son of God, when you have no problem with the Scriptures calling mere men gods. That's what he's saying. But notice that he's not just saying that I'm a mighty ruler like the ancient kings and judges. He, he is clearly saying in verse 39, the Father is in me and I in him. There's no mistaking that Jesus claimed equality with the Father, which is why the Jews sought to take him captive and stone him. And in working through this passage, it would be easy to completely miss what I think is the more significant statement earlier on in verse 35. 
In the gospel, it is just a parenthetical comment. And we skip over it because we get caught up in what does it mean when he says you are gods and, and so on. But Jesus says the scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. And he doesn't just mean only Psalm 82 can't be broken, but he has in mind all of the scriptures, that scripture as a whole cannot be broken, and therefore no part of scripture can be broken. To break scripture would be to deprive it of its authority, to challenge its truth, to imply that it could speak wrongly to us, but scripture cannot be broken because its authority is given from God, and no one can take that authority away. It's true that men act as though Scripture has no authority. They disregard it all the time, right? And they break its laws, but that doesn't mean that the authority is is therefore broken. It's just as when a, a child rebels against his or her parents and acts as though they have no authority. But parents still has authority. Child is still accountable to honor the parent. And the child will be judged for refusing to acknowledge that. And honor. So we must understand that in John 10 35, that this word cannot means impossible. It's not able to be. It is impossible that the word of God should be broken in the sense that it would be found to contain error, power, and life. And many people today don't agree with that statement of Jesus. They consider Scripture to be breakable, fallible. Some say that all of Scripture is fallible. None of it's ultimately trustworthy. Others say only parts are that way. Some point out, for example, that in parallel passages of Scripture, there seem to be discrepancies. After all, we have four gospel accounts, and when you put them paralleled next to one another, sometimes one gospel places an event uh, slightly different or later it seems in the ministry of Christ than another gospel, or something is added by one author over another, another word that was spoken or another thing that happened. The books of Samuel and Kings in the Old Testament have parallel accounts in the books of Chronicles, and in comparing those, but all three, sometimes a king's name may be different between the accounts. Other critics claim that the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament in a freestyle, that their words don't match word for word what we read in the equivalent Old Testament passage that they're quoting, and still others claim that the teachings of Scripture contradict the findings of science and history. The Bible talks about a six-day creation, a 24-hour day Six-day creation, modern science argues that the world evolved over billions of years. So how do we answer these who would break the word of God? Well, it's good for you to understand their assumptions. And first, first understanding is that the assumption that most critics have as they regard the scriptures as being breakable is that the Bible is the word of man and not the word of God. And since men make mistakes, well, wouldn't it stand to reason that when they write from their own experience that they are going to be influenced by their culture, they're going to be restricted by their own limitations, of course there would be errors, right? That's the assumption. 
Well, the Bible does not settle for that kind of a claim, and therefore neither should we. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we see Paul writing, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Hebrews 4.12, which was a, the theme verse for our camp, describes the word of God as living and powerful. 2 Timothy 3 says that it is inspired, and James 1 tells us that the scripture is able to save our souls. So it's important that you understand what is implied by that assumption. Versus what it means to say that the Bible is the word of God. Remember that critics point out that that men wrote the books of Scripture. You'll have a friend, maybe on campus or at work, or a neighbor, say these things to you. In just a moment, for example, I quoted Paul and James. Was I quoting these two apostles, or was I quoting God? And did I quote the very words of God in the order that he spoke them, or was I speaking principles of God that men put into their own words? How do you answer your neighbor, your coworker, your friend? And these may seem like picky questions, but you need to have answers for them. What do you do with, I mentioned Mormonism earlier, what do you do with the Mormon that says that the Bible is God's word only if it's translated correctly and it's fine to have the Book of Mormon and Doctrine of Covenants contradict the Bible? What do you do with the Catholic who claims that the Apocrypha should be in our Bibles because it too is the word of God? What do you do with the scientist who says the six-day creation account in Genesis is just poetry and uh, allegorical and isn't meant to be taken literally? If you do not have a solid understanding of God's word and what it is, you will find yourself very quickly plummeting down a slippery slope into a pit of relativism where you don't know what is true and what should be believed. And certainly that's not what God meant when he said that the word of God is living and powerful and life transforming. When we affirm that the Bible is God's word, we assert that the writers of scripture did not write their own words, but God's words. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. 2 Peter 1.21 says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the link between these two passages is that connection between what Peter calls being carried by the Holy Spirit and what Timothy calls breathed out. That word in 2 Peter, carried, is the word pheromenoi in Greek, And there are two important things about that word. The first is that it is in the passive tense. It's a passive verb. And those of you who are doing grammar in English or have done grammar in English know that the passive tense of a verb means that an action is performed on the subject, right? The subject doesn't do the action. The action is done to the subject. So the spirit carried the men. The men were moved, They didn't move themselves, right? That's important for us to know. Pheromenoi literally means they were 
carried. And it would be great to have this illustration of somebody standing on stage and you know, a couple people carrying them. And that's the Holy Spirit moving them to write the words of Scripture. These authors were moved and carried by the Holy Spirit to where he wanted them to go. Where did he want them to go? What was the finished product? The goal and destination was what appeared on that page. And Peter's statement makes it clear that when we use that phrase, breathed out from 2 Timothy 3, we aren't talking about inspiration in the sense of influenced. A person might say, I feel inspired today. I feel inspired to write some poetry. I'm going to write a psalm. That's not what we are seeing in Psalm 82. The prophets, prophets weren't influenced to write better words. They weren't motivated to think on higher things. They were passively carried and driven by the Holy Spirit so that what was produced could be truly said to be the word of God and not the word of men. That's why Paul earlier said to the Thessalonians, I thank the Lord that you accepted what I, what I wrote to you as not being my words. I wasn't just feeling inspired today. The Holy Spirit actually carried me to sin. He spoke to you through me. And it's why we can't pick up a very godly, thoughtful work by somebody like John Calvin or C.H. Spurgeon or B.B. Warfield or R.C. Sproul and then call them the word of God. Those men might be influenced and inspired. They even may be illuminated by the Holy Spirit and have worthy things to say, but they are not carried along by the Holy Spirit in the same way. A second assumption that critics make is that even if an author could be said to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that didn't prevent them from making errors. Is that true? Well, we've already seen that the Bible says that men were carried along by the Spirit, but then why aren't all the words they wrote in the same style, right? Like dictation machines that you speak out and they produce the, the words and you go, okay. Same style, same wording, same author. That's the assumption. That's what we would expect to see. Well, how did God carry along these authors? How did he inspire them? Did he speak audible words to them? Sometimes, but not usually. When we examine the writings of Scripture, we see, you do see the personality of Paul in his letters. We see that as a very different style than of John. We read John a little bit earlier. When we read Psalm 23, like we did a few months ago from David, we, we see his experiences clearly coming through in Psalm 23 as a shepherd. So how can the Spirit work in men so that they write while manifesting their own personalities and their own experiences of life and still be considered a word-for-word inspired account from God without error? Think about, and this is where there's a great comfort in believing that our God is sovereign. It's a great comfort in believing that our God is sovereign because from all eternity, he sovereignly ordained and purposed everything that should happen in time and history. 
His sovereign purpose was to write the scriptures, to make himself known to his people in Jesus Christ by way of the written word. He knew the end from the beginning. He knew what he was going to do with Christ, knew when Christ was going to come according to his plan, the way it was going to happen, even the words that Jesus was going to say. How could he guarantee that the Bible's words would be his, even though spoken through different authors in different eras? How? Well, if you think about a God that ordains the end from the beginning and that has ordained that these 66 books that we have in the Bible should be written, some in the form of a letter, some in the form of historical narrative, some poetry, and so on, yet speaking the same truth, the author and entirety of all of which is God and not men, you would have to say the only way that is possible is that God raised up in his providence these authors. For example, a David. And in order that David would write and could write a Psalm 23, which David had ordained that David would write, God so worked in David's life and circumstances that he became a shepherd. And in order to prepare and equip a Paul to talk with the churches Throughout Asia Minor about suffering, God allowed Paul to suffer many things for the gospel, including beatings and imprisonment. And he raised up and prepared these men that he wanted to write the scriptures in order that what they wrote expressed their own personality and yet followed from their experience in their own types of wording and yet were carried for all of that along by the Holy Spirit. How can that be? Are you still asking that? Well, if to this point you have not been satisfied with the answer, God's sovereignty carried away and by the Holy Spirit, God's sovereign ordination of all things, then all I have left to say is that it was a miracle. No less is the inspiration of Scripture a miracle than the Son of God becoming flesh and dying for his people. No less is it a miracle than God deciding to save us, regenerating our hearts, commanding us to confess His Son, and yet taking credit for all the work of salvation. These are miraculous interventions in time, space, human history, so that God would bring about what He intended to bring about. And perhaps a person might agree that God has the ability to move men to write His words, but there's a large step to take between believing in inspiration and saying that the specific books that we have today in the Old and New Testaments were inspired. How do we know that 1 Corinthians is inspired and not 1 Maccabees or the Apocrypha? How can we be confident that we have all of the inspired works of God and that everything in Scripture is equally inspired? Well, that leads to the final assumption by critics. Namely, that men chose what would be the canon of Scripture. And that word canon means measuring rod. They, they set up the criteria and, and they decided by vote of whoever these men were what we would regard as the Bible. And we have to be careful. Man does not determine the inspiration of Scripture. Man discovers, 
man recognizes the inspiration of Scripture. That's an important distinction. Canonicity, saying that a particular book is the Word of God and not men, is not about a group of people with a stack of potential Bible books raising their hands and writing, you know, voting on which ones they think are inspired. Instead, believers had to ask, how are we going to recognize? If you were, if you were asked to sit down and, and put together criteria, how to discover or recognize that this is truly the Word of God, what would you come up with? Would it be age? There are many old books that have been around for centuries because of their popularity. Should we include them in the canon of Scripture? Obviously, age wasn't what prompted the church to place the works of the apostles in the canon because there was a collection at the time known as the works of Moses that were in addition to what we have as the inspired works of Moses, right? The Genesis through Deuteronomy books. Those other books, the true works, inspired works of Moses, were collected and placed at the side of the Ark of the Covenant immediately after his death and regarded as inspired. Well, okay, so we have five books. Would our criterion be agreement with those? Genesis through Deuteronomy, the very first books accepted as inspired. Well, it goes without saying that books that contradict the Pentateuch should be rejected. If the first five books of the Old Testament are inspired and God is their author, he will not contradict himself. However, it is not the Pentateuch that determines canonicity. Rather, it is inspiration by the Holy Spirit that determines canonicity. Does that make sense? It's a difference, right? A theory is like agreement with the Pentateuch is too broad. There are many books that agreed with the Pentateuch but were not accepted as inspired. For example, the rabbis quoted from the Talmud and in the Midrash all the time, but they didn't hold them at the same level of inspiration as Genesis through Deuteronomy. Well, what about religious value? There are many valuable books that have been written. Even the apocryphal books have some value, but... But as with previous criteria, books of the Bible are not considered God-given because they're found at value. They're valuable because they are given by God. Okay, we, can't, we have to have the cart and the horse in the right position. God is the source of all value. If God spoke, if God inspired these words, if these were his words, then they are valuable. Even though other books have value. So what should be the features? Well, I'll tell you what these secret men, not so secret actually, these men used as their criteria in recognizing and discovering the inspired books. And the first one was authority. Each book in the Bible bears the claim of divine authority. Often that's explicit. book will say, thus saith the Lord. Sometimes it's tone. Exhortations make it evident that the author is claiming to be speaking for God. Sometimes revelations about what the people should do, or other times it's what he has done. Some books actually lack, there is one book that lacks the claim to be divine, and that's the book of, you know, Esther. And not until it was obvious to all that the protection and therefore the pronouncements of God on his people were unquestionably present in 
in Esther. In other words, that God was so evident in the book of Esther was it given a place in the canon because it met all the other features. A second is authorship. Inspired books come only from inspired authors. And Paul argues in Galatians that his book should be accepted because he was an apostle. Well, someone says, so what? (laughs) You can call yourself to be anything you want. Why is it significant that he's an apostle? Well, Paul tells us in his letters that his apostleship was not from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And because Christ appointed Paul, Christ also, what Paul is saying is Christ supervised my ministry. He has been behind my ministry, including what I've written the entire time. So books were to be rejected if they did not come from an inspired author. Another feature was authenticity. Any book with factual or doctrinal errors judged by previous canonical revelation, you know, books that were already in, regarded, recognized, discovered as being inspired, obviously could not be similarly inspired. God doesn't lie. He doesn't change. His word must be consistent. That's why it's so important when we read in Acts 17 about the Bereans, how they accepted Paul's teachings. Why? Well, they didn't just do it like that at first. I mean, they were authoritative teachings, but they searched the scriptures to make sure that what he taught was really in accord with God's revelation. So it says, the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed. Some were initially questioned on this basis, trying to reconcile the book of James, for example, with the book of Romans. James seemed to disagree with Paul in terms of the the role of works in salvation. But it wasn't, wasn't until James was actually fully understood that its compatibility with Paul's letters was accepted. So these books in your Bible are authoritative. They claim to speak on behalf of God. They are authored by inspired prophets or apostles. They are authentic, consistent with previous revelation. Fourth, they possess life-transforming power. That was one of the great things that we kept uh, hammering at at camp this past week where Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is alive and powerful, piercing and dividing, right? Bone from marrow. That's why Paul tells Timothy that the the word of God can be used for teaching and training in righteousness. It is able to make us wise into salvation. And so an obvious question that we ask about whether a book should be in the Bible is whether or not it has that attribute. Is it alive and powerful and piercing? And then a final criterion used by the historic church was acceptance by the people of God. Was that book not just recognized by these men at a council. But has it and had it been recognized as the word of God by the people of God to whom it was originally given? From the very start that that book appeared on the scene in the church, not somebody three centuries later looking back, but the first century church, for example, did they regard that as canonical? 
So authority, prophetic authorship, or inspired authorship, authenticity, life-transforming power, recognition by God's people, those are the attributes of inspired works and why the books that you have in your Bible are there versus other things like the Apocrypha or other, other valuable, helpful books. And because the books of your Bible are God's word, they reveal his character and will, and they are worthy to be read and obeyed. They have the ability to cut to the heart, to divide truth from error, to equip you for all righteousness. And for 2,000 years, the Bible has been taking hold of people's hearts, making them tremble first with fear because it reveals sin, but then with faith because it reveals God's grace. That's the powerful work of the transforming word of God. A single verse, Romans 13, 13, convicted and converted Augustine. For Martin Luther, a miserable monk, the key passage was Romans 1.17 as he was trying to reconcile justification by faith. About that one verse, Romans 1.17, Luther said, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped, he writes, that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith and I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. For Jonathan Edwards, it was 1 Timothy 1.17. Edwards writes, the first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading these words, 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And as I read the words, he writes, there came into my soul a sense of glory. A new sense quite different from anything I ever experienced before. Never did any words of scripture seem to me as these words did. And so from century to century, from country to country, the scriptures have drawn people to Christ and made them new. And the answer can only be that they are not the words of men, but they are the word of God. Do you believe the Bible to be God's word? I would venture to guess that none of you sit down with the 66 books and you go, okay, here's the criteria. Is it authentic? Is it written by an inspired author? Maybe once when you did a study of canonicity and how we got our Bibles, you went through that in your mind. But you know what you probably have instead recognized on a far more simple and practical basis is that these books are there and appropriately so for a few reasons. First, the testimony of your own conscience. The reality of God behind nature, the message of scripture coming together in your heart to give you the inescapable conviction that you are a slave to guilt, or sin and guilty for breaking God's law. No other book that you ever read had that kind of power in your life in which your conscience in reading about your sin led you to faith in Christ. That was the life-transforming power of God's authority and work in the word. Second, probably very simple practical thing for you, Jesus Christ is revealed in scripture. 
And so you've seen the authority that he claimed to forgive sin and command demons and control nature. You, saw, you see the purity of his, of his teachings and his utter surrender in his life to the will of God and his brilliant calm under cross-examination, his willingness to sacrifice for you, his righteous fury and anger against the hypocrites, his tenderness towards little children and his patience with humble seekers, even as we saw here, the invitation even to the rich young man, the sweetest, most neatest word, uh, most needed words ever spoken. I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. And so by the force of that character, you have found that he has won your confidence and trust. And then you allow his words to control how you see the Bible. Did Jesus not tell us in John 10 that the scripture cannot be broken? Does he not tell us in Matthew 5 that not a jot or tittle shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished? We believe him. And when he chooses 12 apostles and he gives them authority to teach and when he promises that the Holy Spirit will guide them into all truth, we accept the writings of those men because we believe the authority and claims of Jesus to preserve his people, his under shepherds. And third, as you begin to read the scriptures with greater discernment, it's not long before you recognize, in fact, that within all of these 66 books, Old Testament, New Testament alike, there is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see him in the promise to overcome the serpent, Genesis 3. You see him in the symbols of the tabernacle in Leviticus and Exodus. You see him in the shepherd of Psalm 23. You see him in the prophecies of Isaiah and the other prophets. You see him, we've seen him several times in our psalms that we've covered. And our confidence in the scripture begins to realize as we see this gradually unfolding revelation of what to expect in Jesus. And we see the amazing way in which God kind of peppered throughout the entire thing. Thousands of years of writings. The preparation for his son. The revelation of our sin. And the provision of grace and mercy through Jesus. And so our confidence, your confidence grows. I agree you don't sit down with criteria of canonicity. But I do venture to guess that you probably do think about that. I see Jesus in the Psalms. I see Jesus in Genesis. Wasn't God amazing that he wrote all of these books through all of these different authors, all telling a single story? And we see how time and again it helps us to make sense out of life's puzzles and challenges. We, we see how it helps us in our failing marriages or our rebellious children or our sinful lifestyles or between nations and the, the longing of our heart, a fear of death. What to do with anger, what to do with shame, what to do with depression, what, to, what is true joy, all of those things answered in the Bible, and we begin to truly agree within our conscience, this is different. This book is the word of God. It is not the word of men. And so Paul would say to you, the only conclusion then, and I praise God, that's what he would say to you, I praise God that you have accepted the Bible, not as the words of men, 
but as the inspired and infallible word of God. And so in John 10, Jesus says in Psalm 82, but really of the entire Bible that existed at the time, that what we have today is the Old Testament, because that was a scripture of Jesus' time, and we can extend it to include the New Testament for us today, that it cannot be broken because it's God's word. Not only that, but as we'll see in coming weeks, there's joy to be had in realizing that it speaks very specifically to our struggles. I'm looking forward to showing you in the next several psalms how God's word, authoritative, authentic, life-transforming, speaks to some significant things that we experience in our lives, including depression, anxiety, fear of man, and more. They're all in the Psalms. It's why so many people are excited about what this book that we've been studying has to teach us. Let's pray.